Welcome to the Canadian Real Estate Investor, where hosts Daniel Foch and Nick Hill navigate the market and provide the tools and insights to build your real estate portfolio. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to another episode of the Canadian Real Estate Investor podcast. I'm your co-host, Nick Hill, real estate investor, mortgage agent, and I'm joined today by my good friend and Mr. Real Estate himself, Daniel Foch. What's going on, Dan? Not much. Been a crazy couple of weeks here. Just a lot of stuff going on. Interesting happenings in the landlord and tenant world, interesting happenings in the real estate market. And I mean, we've done a couple of really, really hearty episodes lately. So I'm excited to have a little bit of a lighter one today. What are we talking about today, Nick? The working title of this episode right now is 15 Lessons from the King of New York City Real Estate, which has got a nice ring to it. Yeah, I like that. I personally wouldn't call this individual the king of New York City real estate. I personally would call Zeckendorf the actual king of New York City real estate. A great book, by the way, for anybody looking for another read. It's called Zeckendorf. Actually kind of a tough book to find. There's also another notable figure who's proclaimed themselves king of New York City real estate in the recent (laughs) past as well. I thought we were going to make it political on here. Oh, yeah, we did. And, and that's why I didn't mention any names specifically. So anyway, what uh, else you got good. going on? Oh, it's been a busy week, man. We had a couple deals closing this week. So that's always fun. And one of them was literally down to the wire with getting docs together, which was good. It was this client's sixth property. So they get a little more complicated when you get up there, especially if you're a business owner. But we got everything done and, and everything satisfied with the lender. I did have to spend like almost two grand on a stackable laundry center today, which which really sucked. And like I called around everywhere and and man, I did not realize how expensive these things were. It's, yeah, appliance companies kind of sure know how to do inflation. I actually just went through, I was worried that I lost a washing machine, a brand new one on a new build that I closed on recently. The installer didn't take the, I guess there was a miscommunication between the installer and the delivery company and nobody took the moving bolts off of the... So you know how there's those giant bolts that go through the thing to hold the drum in place? I don't know if you know this and I don't know if the listeners know this, but there are. And (laughs) if you you (laughs) run a washing machine with those on, it like literally shakes violently because the drum is held in place. So pro tip, take those off. So I had a tenant (laughs) complaining. They were like, yeah, like this washing machine is going to like go through the floor. And I was like, yeah, I know exactly what's wrong. I'll be over right away because I do not want to lose a washing machine yet. No, or a floor. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Especially in a brand new house. And yeah, we had a, some police involvement ongoing at a at a rental as well. We had a yes, squatter. Yes, the never-ending rental issue. Yeah. That one's been a nightmare for you guys, man. Wow. Yeah, it is interesting. I mean, I like Johnny and I, the property has a bit of a dark history and we were kind of just at one point looked at each other and I was like, is this, is this place cursed? And he's like, I, I think it is, man. I think it is. So, I mean, yeah, <laughs> you know, without disclosing too much because it is an ongoing thing, we did have a, a squatter who was in the process of negotiating themselves as a tenant, appeared great on paper, and then just decided to move themselves in after they kind of cased the joint during a viewing. (laughs) (laughs) Crazy, crazy. I'll update people more on it because I know a lot of people do want to hear about the crazy landlord tenant stories. We really do have to do an episode about all of the stuff we've dealt with and and not even just the stuff we've dealt with because I know we both have 
some great stories, but man, some of the stories that we've, you know, secondary tertiary stories from clients or friends and other investors, it, it's, it gets wild out there. I feel like it's one of those kind of like cathartic things to like, you know, almost like these 12 step communities where people sit around and, and talk about, you know, shared issues. Like Hi, it's my like, name's Nick and I'm a landlord. Honestly, like it really is. Yeah. Very much like that. So yeah, I mean, I think it would be a worthwhile. And there is that individual um, out of Kingston, I think, who runs a property management company who said, we really got to do an episode on what happens after, like, you know, investing is a big part of it, buying right and all of that stuff. And, and you can control for all the variables, but really asset management is a huge part of real estate investing and property management. And and so we really do got to dive in on some some gritty how-tos in that, best practices and all that. For sure. Yeah, for sure. And I guess, yeah, you want to jump in? Let's jump in here. I was just going to say one more thing. You know, I, I've had a really great week, really busy week, but this week I've probably taken almost a dozen calls from listeners. I've been on the phone a lot with people that have reached out to me or reached out to us, I should say, Dan, that, that listen to the podcast. You know, they simply just email the podcast, ask a couple of questions. I say, hey, let's get on a call instead. And it's been a really great experience for me. I think it's been a great experience for them. I, we're going to help at least half of them, if not more, start to look for properties, get pre-approvals, help a few of them structure and build portfolios. So if you guys want to chat with us, I know you, you listen to us through your earpieces every day, but we're just two normal guys that like talking about real estate. So earpieces, what is that? I, what is I know. I, the I, secret I, service? I stumbled there and I was like, do I say AirPods or headphones? I don't know. We don't have a brand Anyways, deal you know what I mean. Yet. The secret service yeah, is exactly. listening into their earpieces. Anyways, long story short, give us a call if you want to chat. Let's get into today's episode, Dan. Okay. Who are we talking about today? Steven Ross. The disputed king of New York City real estate is worth $11.6 billion. In his 50 plus years of experience, he has built related into the largest real estate developer in the US. He doesn't do a lot of interviews, but the ones he does are gold. And here are 15 lessons from the king. Where did you get this? Is this from Duke of Dirt? This is from our buddy Duke of Dirt, once again, who we will again have to have on the podcast. Yeah, we at really some do. Point. So, Stephen Michael Ross, born in 1940, an American real estate developer, philanthropist, and a notable sports team owner. Ross is the chairman and majority owner of the Related Companies, a global real estate development firm that he founded in 1972. Time in the market has been helpful here. Related is best yes. known for developing the Deutsche Bank Center, where he lives and works, as well as the Hudson Yards redevelopment project. Let's unpack all that, Nick. Yeah, that's a lot right there. Steve's been a busy guy. The Related Companies is an American real estate firm based in New York with offices and developments in Boston, Chicago, LA, Las Vegas, Miami, San Francisco, Abu Dhabi, London, San Paolo, and Shanghai. Just a couple. Sounds a couple like you're reading the there. real estate bubble index again. <laughs> yeah, really. They... What is it? 3,000 employees and they're the largest landlord in New York City with over 8,000 rental units under ownership. Yeah, crazy. Related manages about $4 billion of equity capital on behalf of sovereign wealth funds, public pension funds, multi-managers, endowments, and family offices. They're well known for developing the Hudson Yards, which is 28 acres in Manhattan's Chelsea and Hell's Kitchen neighborhoods. Absolutely crazy project. I actually... I was doing Cornell's international real estate case competition right before they launched this. So I was in New York around this time. It was when 432 Park was being developed as well as One World Trade, the new World Trade Center, the new tower. And this project was kind of just ramping up. And like they literally like floated it over the yards, I believe. Like it's like 
stacked like it's like a floating and there's like big concrete cantilevers and just like crazy super extraordinary like engineering feats that wouldn't have been possible like there's literally a full shipping yard under the development (laughs) anyway yeah you know it's not even like a project right like we're we in canada we've seen some big stuff in toronto and and some big stuff in vancouver but when I was there last with uh, with Nicole a few months ago, I insisted we go to this neighborhood because I've been obsessed with it and following it since it uh, it's, it's its inception in 2012. And it's like it's got its own skyline, yeah. right? I mean, it's it's it started in 2012. It's not going to set to finish until 2027, likely later than that. But anyway, very notable project. He also Stephen Ross. He also owns the Miami Dolphins. Little known team there, pick up football. Every time I think NFL, of the Dolphins yeah. now, I used to think of like, what was it, Laces Out, Dan? But now I think of that TV show, Ballers. Yes, yes. You mean starring Dwayne Johnson. Absolutely, yeah. That one. That's <laughs> a great show, actually. He bought the Dolphins for a cool billion back in 2008. 2008, though, I wonder if the Dolphins were on sale back then and not just real estate. Guess it depends when in 2008 he bought them, to be honest. Get me started here with rule number one, Nick. When things are bad, no one sees the good. When things are good, no one sees the bad. People are bad at seeing outside the near-term financial situations. Keep in mind whenever the economy takes drastic moves. So I can speak to this. You know how many times I've looked at my bank account and been like, wow, I am broke. But then I remember that I own multiple properties. If I were to focus on the fact that I had risked something and put way too much on my credit card or taken out a line of credit to pay for some renovation or something like that, I would be panicking. But I know that if I stick to my plan and look a year, three years, five years out, I should be good. Now, obviously, financial stress is a horrible thing. I've had it before. I'm sure we all have. Mitigate that as much as possible, but don't get so caught up in the day-to-day, week-to-week, month-to-month of it. There is a way out, right? And that's by going and having those exit strategies. Yeah, for sure. I think that, you know, for me, this really becomes more apparent economically. Like, in you know, it's when... Warren Buffett talks about this too. It's a principle of value investing. When everybody else is going one way, you know, the real money is made going the other way. When things are good in a bull run that we've been in, I mean, you think about the past two years, three years, up until kind of the market turned over, everyone was saying real estate only goes up. And I was, you know, getting ripped apart and getting hate mail for talking about downside risk. And now all of a sudden downside risk is apparent. And and everyone's like, oh, the, mar- the, the sky is falling and the market is horrible and we're in a bear market and everybody wants to focus on the negative. And the news is negative, but the reality is that's where the opportunity comes from. And as soon as the risk that I was talking about in that up market was realized, I knew that the risk was lower and the opportunity was higher. And I think if you can have that contrarian perspective towards the market to the better or the worse... You're often making the safer moves and you're not like there's something to be said for going with the flow and whatever. And if you're early and anticipating those flow trends, then you can often make a lot of money, but just as much so in having a contrarian market perspective, I think, at least for me. So don't be afraid at least to see things from the opposite angle and and be careful to be swayed by FOMO and herd mentality. Yeah, love that. Number two. Yeah, number two here. Surround yourself with the best talent there is. Ross coined the acronym PhD for poor, hungry, and driven. This is the criteria (laughs) he looks for in hiring great talent. I can comfortably say I have had multiple PhDs starting multiple different businesses over the years, and I think he's onto something there. I mean, you don't 
those might be a bit extreme. You don't really need to be poor or hungry. You know, definitely get your get your nutrients, guys. <laughs> we don't want you working with uh, with no omega three. But I think it it's pretty clear what that you know what that acronym stands for. It just means he needs motivated people. Yeah, and I think that you know you can argue that everybody almost needs to go through one of those moments in their investing career to really like give you clarity create that kind of why that you talk about a lot. I mean, I think I'm probably less of a qualitative investor than you are where you think about a lot of those emotive or, you know, psychological components, but that PhD moment for a lot of people I think is is really what can be defining in your career and how you respond to that adversity. Yeah. Big time. Give me number 3 here. You can't get there alone. His mom lent him $10,000 to bridge his first year in New York City. His uncle, Max Fisher, was a very successful businessman and later philanthropist. Ross called him the most important role model in his life. Find your crew to enable success. Yeah, I love that. Yeah, I mean, like that could have stopped after the first line for me. You can't get there alone. Yeah. Dan, you and I say this time and time again. I've said this to the dozen people I spoke to that reached out to me from the show this week when they were trying to figure out how to get to that first one or that next one or that 10th one is bring in partners, find people with complementary skills to you and work with them. Yeah. And I think it's like not having a fear of, it's almost like a greed, right? Like everybody wants it all for themselves. And I think that life becomes infinitely more beautiful when you're sharing it with others. And I think investing can be like that too. Like it's offering an alternative perspective. Obviously, it's best when we talk about that team building in, in one of our early episodes to avoid redundancies so you can have a compounding effect on what your team is capable of accomplishing. But I think, you know, really people got to evaluate, like, do you want 100% of nothing or do you want 50% of something? Because your likelihood of accomplishing something is a lot greater when you build a team and when you're doing it with other people, for sure. Number four here, just because you have a place to develop something doesn't mean you should. You need to have the economics to back a development or an investment. I mean, you know, some of these bigger capital market size players, you're going to hear the word development thrown around a lot, but a development can be as small as you adding a unit to a house or, you know, turning over a, a multiplex. You need to have the fundamentals there to make that whole thing make sense. You need to have jobs existing or a plan to bring jobs to the development or, you know, the degree of sustainability, wage growth. Like you can't just throw capital at a place and hope that that development or investment materializes. You got to have underlying economic drivers. 100%. And you and I have been lucky enough to look at some pretty cool developments recently, whether it's, you know, laneway homes and and minor developments in the GTA to to fairly major $100 million plus construction projects in, in the Calgary Edmonton area. And that's priority number one is, you know, it's not build it and they will come. Like they've got to already be there at this point really for you to, to build it. Or you've got to have some pretty great pull factors and be able to catch those trends. And, you know, maybe you've built it or you're building it. And by the time everyone does get there, you're ready to go. Let's move on. The seminal development of his career was the Time Warner Center. He built it without experience in building mixed-use skyscrapers. Now he has undertaken the largest development in the world, Hudson Yards, what we mentioned at the start here. And Ross lives by the motto of thinking bold. 
That's a pretty easy one, right? Shoot for the stars, aim on or land on the clouds, however that kind of stuff goes, right? Put yourself in uncomfortable positions. I think you'll be surprised at how you perform. Dan, you'll probably know what this is. What's that that idea that, you know, you'll spend the allotted amount of time that you've allotted for a task. So if I give myself, you know, an hour to write one of these episodes, I'll get it done in an hour. But if I give myself a day, it'll take me the better part of a day. I don't know that concept actually, but it sounds really interesting to me. I'd have to look it up. Uh Uh-oh. Oh, I'm sure one go. of our listeners know they're all smarter than us. And I mean that yes, honestly, I'm not chirping. Like it's actually remarkable how brilliant people in our audience are. We appreciate all, all of you. Real estate companies need diverse income streams to survive downturns. Well, that's irrelevant because we're not nearing a downturn at all right now, right, Nick? We're in it, baby. Living in it now. So <laughs> Ross sold tax credits as another source of income for his real estate development company. Seek diversification of income streams, other sources of income other than development fees and promotes and, you know, just rental revenue as an example for those of us who are really, you know, the buy and hold investors. Can you add a unit? Do you have coin laundry in your buildings yet? I know a lot of guys like doing the the in-suite laundry. There's some great research on the economics of in-suite versus coin laundry. And You got to tell me this now after I just told you I bought a $2,000 laundry center? <laughs> in-suite laundry is very overused, man. I mean, it's a luxury and people like luxuries. They certainly capitalize on them. I mean, I'm just, you know, examples here, right? But just think about your income streams and how can you diversify everything in, in your investment? Diversification is how you hedge against risk, right? Totally. I think it's cool because in each property that you own, there could and should be multiple ways to get money, right? Let's say you own a duplex, you're getting two people, two different people paying rent. Well, what if there's the garage that you can rent out to someone else to store something in there if both your tenants don't have cars? As Dan just said, coin laundry. And then of course, outside of that, right? I mean, maybe you have a full-time job, maybe you have a full-time job and a side hustle. Maybe you've got a podcast that makes a couple bucks a month, right? Every dollar counts. Number seven, be the best in class. Stephen Ross doesn't just build another project on the old block. He shoots to build the absolute best in class buildings. At Hudson Yards, he built the best in class office space and it has done better than they projected to do when they even began the development. So I'd be interested to hear what you have to say about this, Dan, because, you know, be the best in class. I think overall, I completely agree with that sentiment, but sometimes you don't want to be the best in class if you're renovating a basement in an area that doesn't require best in class and you aren't going to get that ROI. So I'd say this one's a bit more subjective. I guess it depends. I mean, I think I've really drastically changed my perspective on making properties, rental properties nicer. Not to say that I was like, you know, I mean, we joked earlier about people using the word slumlord to describe people who defer maintenance. And I was never a deferred maintenance guy, but I never often saw the value in putting really high quality. You didn't quality. care about the backsplash. Well, I, you I didn't, didn't. didn't care about the color of the backsplash. I, I never saw the value in it. But <laughs> there is a certain pride of ownership that comes with creating beautiful spaces for tenants. And it also creates a better quality of life for them, a better, you know, like psyche, you know, better, I guess, like, you know, your tenant is human capital as well, just like employees, which is one of the things we're going to be talking about next. But you got to think about like taking care of them makes them more likely to be economically successful, continue to go to their job, you know, like all of these things. And like, these are actually input and output variables that can be evaluated, right? So there is a degree of consumer psychology layer in the landlord tenant relationship that is reflected in the product. And I think that you know, for us, we do buy a lot of price floor product. We definitely are providing affordable rental in a lot of cases, but 
little nuanced differences that, you know, you can provide. Like, I think there was a landlord in the States talking about, and I was listening to another Canadian podcast maybe, but, you know, giving their tenants Tim cards on Christmas, like, and it just like little differentiators like that as an example, or, you know, when you do have a unit that's turning over or like asking the tenant if there's something that you can do, a small repair that you could do, like, or, you know, like, do you need a new toilet? Cause that's only going to cost you 500 bucks. And like, yeah, it might really make a difference. Like how can you move the needle in small, but meaningful ways? I think yeah, for I that. it is, it's an easy way to be best in class. It's really not that hard to compete as a landlord in Canada, to be honest with you. Right. Like if you think mm-hmm. about the product that you're selling, because there are a lot of bad landlords out there. And so one of the big components of being a good investor is being a good landlord. And so that to me is an opportunity to be best in class pretty easily. Can you be the best provider of student housing in Kingston? Can you be the best provider of co-living homes in Toronto? Can you be the best provider of up-down duplexes in Saskatoon? Like probably, to be honest, those are achievable things. And yeah. you know, we go back to that kind of that principle of ikigai this Japanese principle where it's like this, you know, what can you be the best at, but also make money at and create immense societal value. And I don't think it's that hard to do that. It's just, it's one of those things that most people are so busy surviving. They don't pause to think about it and they don't wonder whether or not it's actually going to pay off. Yeah, I think you're right. I think there's huge ROI on doing all those little things you just said. So well done. Take us to the next one. Yeah, for sure. They aren't employees, they're partners. Ross believes in hiring great people and giving them autonomy to get their job done. One way he does this is by considering them a part of the team, not just a piece and not just a cog in the machine, right? Yeah, man. I mean, this hits home for us right now, big time, right? I mean, we've been leaning on more people than ever before and we're looking at them as partners. I don't want a bunch of employees. I want a bunch of people that I like, that I enjoy working with that have the same interests and the same goals that I do, right? So a great example of this is, you know, Dan and I have been reaching out or, or people have been reaching out to us and we're kind of been looking for quote unquote champions to help us get our events started across the country. Well, each one of those people, I feel like we're providing them with a pretty great opportunity to meet other real estate investors or if they're professional in the space to maybe get a ton of business like that. But we would not be able to do that ourselves. We've been looking for people that want to do those same things with us and bringing them on as partners and looking at them as we are going to build this and work together. For sure. And I mean, it's interesting to kind of circle back to that concept of you can't get there alone, right? Like there's no way that we could possibly execute having meetup events, monthly meetup events, coast to coast without other people. And like, again, it comes back to, would I rather have 50% of you know the leads or the earnings from an event that we're doing with a partner? Or would I rather have 100% of nothing because there's no way that we could do 10 monthly events indefinitely, right? So next one, number nine, it is easier to grow if you've done it yourself. Now that sounds like we're contradicting what we just said, but wait a minute. Having done a particular job makes it much easier to understand the difficulties and point one in the right direction. Ross did all the jobs early on, which he says enabled him to act more efficiently and hire the right people to grow. I totally agree with this as well, right, Dan? I mean, we wouldn't know what to tell people unless we had kind of done it ourselves and and figured it out a little bit, right? That way we can at least give someone else the direction to do it and then, you know, ideally offload that task and, and work with that person on the way. 
I think they can go like it can go as as high as what we mentioned in the the most recent episode, the other people's money episode, where you know if you're getting the reps in, if you're doing the deals with your own capital, the money will come. But also, it can go as small as like if you've DIY'd maybe a, a duplex conversion, you're more familiar with fireproofing or egress windows and sizes and code, and maybe you did your applications on your own on the first time because you were bootstrapping. Then the next time when you have the money to hire a designer or a contractor or whatever, you're more likely to execute properly. You're more likely to spend the money and economize that decision-making process way better because you have such a deep understanding of that topic now because you did it yourself. So don't be afraid to get your hands dirty on a lot of these things and bootstrap. And don't feel like you're like you're underselling yourself when you're bootstrapping. Like I literally was hand excavating a basement during COVID <laughs> because I couldn't find trades, right? Yeah. And, and I had no objection to it. And it felt kind of like a stupid use of my time in a lot of cases. But the reality is it would cost me like 90K to get that basement done. And we did it for half the price because we, you know, and it's like, don't underpay yourself, but also like, don't get too self-important to the point where you're too afraid to get your hands dirty because there's residual value that you can't see on the hourly basis of getting those reps in that really helps you to grow because you've done it yourself. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. I think, you know, pride gets in a lot of people's way and they're like, well, I don't want to go and lease my own space out, or I don't want to go dig the basement out, or I, I don't want to waste time with the landlord tenant board. And they lose and they're missing an opportunity to go and learn those really important things. Like those are real estate fundamentals that I personally feel that most investors, you know, especially newer investors should experience because it's going to help you train the people that you will eventually train when you scale. For sure. And like to negotiate with trades or have a proper property manager relationship, or even like to hand off your portfolio to a property manager, because you know everything about the portfolio, you have exactly. best practices in place, right? Like you can't scale without getting that deep understanding. Or if you do, you're going to hire somebody and they're going to cultivate that deep understanding. And now all of a sudden they're indisposable, so they can charge you whatever they want, right? And so you sacrifice a lot of enterprise ability there. Yeah, Number 10 point. here, a rising market covers a lot of sins. We're seeing this today, right? Yeah. <laughs> Many people bought bad deals in the 18, 19, and they turned out to be home runs. And they may not have been in a different market. Don't get caught with a bad deal when the tide goes out. I think, you know, it's so funny because I mentioned this a couple of times, right? Like there's two quotes, a rising tide lifts all boats. And, and when the tide goes out, you see who's swimming naked and they're, you know, they a lot say of nudists it all. these days. Couple of nudists for sure. That's that's for <laughs> sure. Yeah, I mean, I think we've touched on this one more than enough times, right? Let's keep the train moving here. Success breeds success. An early win, no matter how big it is, is the momentum needed to get ahead. Seek early wins and use that momentum to get into bigger opportunities. This one, again, super relevant. So one thing, Dan, you know, I had mentioned I've been on all these phone calls. This particularly came up a lot, right? What does that first deal have to look like? And I've said this multiple times this week, that first deal has to be a win. It has to be cash flow. It has to be lower barrier to entry. You're going to run into issues with it, with construction or permitting or tenants or whatever. Real estate without issues doesn't exist. But you need to have that first one be a win because if you go in and, and you don't put your all into that first investment or that first project or whatever it is, chances are something's going to go wrong, possibly really wrong. Many things could go wrong. And guess what? 
you're not going to want to invest in real estate anymore. But it's the exact same that if you went and started a business or it's the exact same if you, you know, went to the gym for the first time or whatever, you know, you go into the gym for the first time, you try to max out in the squat machine, boom, say goodbye to your slip discs in your back. So I think, you know, and even on a much larger scale, right, Dan, we just started a new corporation, a new business where we're putting together, you know, the beginnings of a fund and we need each one of our deals to be home runs because if not, it's going to slow our growth and we're going to be dealing with headaches instead of trying to focus on growing the business. Yeah, I think in that context too, like that's a very easily visible iteration of this. Like if you have a bad deal in your track record and you're going to try and raise money, you know, like you're toast, right? And so look, like a lot of this is like, I'm a guy who has pretty severe ADHD, right? And people with ADHD, we chase dopamine, right? And there's like psychology behind this. If you get a win, it makes you feel good. And you go out bolder in the world and you're presenting yourself better and your chest is puffed out or you got a little bit of ego. And that can be dangerous in some senses, but it can also be valuable, right? Momentum can be very, very valuable. If you have a failure, it can really wear you down and your energy levels lower and you wear that, right? And so momentum is a real thing. Number 12, if you know how to execute, you can succeed. And I think this really compounds on that last one. Understanding an opportunity is one thing. It's very easy to do that. And I will be the first to say this, like I'm exceptionally good at understanding opportunities. I'm not a good executor. And so that's one of those things where I knew to bring in somebody who can execute better than me. I'm an okay executor, but I'm not like... Johnny as an example, right? And so taking that knowledge and being able to execute on an idea and put people in motion to accomplish it is a very different thing than understanding. I'm a good understander. I'm probably a better understander than anybody else in our group as an example. So I can present the opportunity, but the better, you know, that somebody else can execute on that opportunity, the further we can go. And that's how you get those successes to incrementally create that momentum that we just mentioned in number 11 and push forward and keep compounding, right? Like momentum is compounding. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. The next one, again, this is this kind of all starts to, to make a lot of sense. Money doesn't fix problems. Brains do. Ross has seen many issues as his days in New York. And as a real estate developer, the best way to fix hard problems is with smart people, not by throwing money at it and hoping it gets better. We, again, this is very relevant now, right? We've all heard the term smart money or dumb money. You know, again, don't be offended by dumb money. There is a lot of dumb money pumped out into the economy over the last several years. And look where we are now, more problems than ever. Money doesn't fix problems, brains do. And it's funny because brains, good brains are usually trying to find money to, you know, to go and figure out how to analyze an opportunity and execute on it. So you need money to do that, but money is not going to be able to fix your problems. Money with smart people, you'll have great growth and you'll be able to accomplish amazing things. But a lot of money and no brains, you're going to end up with a whole bunch of wasted money. The other piece is like money doesn't buy happiness, it buys choice, right? It buys the ability to have options and flexibility. And if you can't make good choices, if you're not decisive, or if you're not good at making decisions, then having more choice is actually a bad thing. It's going to, you know, it can create vast problems or emotional pain or turmoil. And so money in a lot of cases for individuals who haven't mastered that element of capitalizing on choice and allocating time or whatever it is, well, they're going to see a net negative effect of, of increased capital, right? Number 14 here, 
incentivize people with equity stakes. Just as Ross enables autonomy and partnership, he incentivizes people with equity stakes. This makes every employee that much more bought into the success of the project. Kind of like that WestJet model that you hear about, probably the most famous Canadian example. You know, we're we care because we're WestJet owners as well, right? Like, and a lot of tech startups are using this as well. You know, vested options and whatever it is. These are important. Like, this is is tough because a lot of people don't want to give away a portion of their business, but it's really one of the easiest ways to control for the kind of employee problem where people, you know, don't have this vested interest in the success of the business or the project or whatever it is, right? So excellent piece of advice. Yeah, for sure. I mean, just go watch any episode of Dragon's Den or Shark Tank and you'll see how fiercely business owners protect their equity because, you know, it's always, well, it's my baby or whatever it may be. It's funny. I think that as real estate investors and as people with a great deal of interest in real estate, we have this inherent desire to have equity, right? That's what we all want. We want equity to leverage it and to build. And going back to that, you know, he in this, it's funny because they we, we have every employee, but really, if you have equity, you're a partner, right? I mean, now you might have 2% equity and, you know, another partner might have 30% equity and you might not have the same voting rights or someone else might be making more decisions than you are. I love this, Dan. And I mean, you and I, are, we're equity guys, right? We've got equity in a number of different ventures and a number of different businesses. And in each one of those, I am extremely motivated to see it successful because my name is attached to it. And I know that the more the successful it gets, the better it is for me. Yeah, for sure. I completely agree with you. Drive me home with number 15. I like this one because it's got some applicability to what you know stuff that we're doing, but also to the podcast community and stuff like that as well. For sure. Yeah, this is, well, there's community rate in it. If the community does well, you as the developer or investor will do well. A developer needs to be in partnership with their city or their town. The best projects make the city better and distinguish good from great developers. Dan, what are your thoughts on this one? Look, I think that a lot of people dismiss this and they feel like there's this contentious relationship between municipalities who are, you know, realistically just providers of land, right? They're stewards of, they distribute the land that the crown owns in Canada or the crown sort of, right, like that, they allocate that. They want to be involved in this process. And if you go in with a contentious, I mean, unless you're like a top five developer in the country and you're basically telling everybody what to do, which realistically you're there because you've fulfilled that you've checked this box already and you probably know what's best for the town realistically. Yeah. But in, like, if you're not one of them, you got to have these collaborative conversations with the municipality and, and find out what they want. And if it's not in alignment with your goals, then you have to find a way to connect those two dots. And I mean, on an investment perspective, it's the same thing, right? Like if you're, if you are being a slumlord, if you're deferring maintenance and you're running really rough housing or whatever, it's taking value away from that community that you're holding that housing within. And gradually that can pull down the value of a neighborhood if that's the culture that you're creating with the asset that you're bringing. So yeah. you want to try and like level up and bring the world up around you. It's like that Coach Carter quote, right? Like, you know, that's from... Oh, here we go. You know what I'm talking <laughs> about, right? Our greatest fear is not that we're inadequate. It's like... It's a Marianne Williamson quote that's like falsely attributed to Nelson Mandela, I think. But I mean, it's just that like, I think it's our greatest fears that we're capably on measure. Our light, not our darkest is what most frightens us. And at the end, he says, 
you know, by don't play small, you know, by letting our, our light shine, we unconsciously give others around us the permission to do the same. Right. I think that like that applies to this. If you're doing well with your assets, the neighbors kind of are going to start doing the same thing or, and so I definitely think that this rings true on a small scale or a large one. Yeah. Yeah. I couldn't agree more. And I love the quote. You're always good for a nice, a good, a good quote there. I want to talk about this for the last minute or two here in a different sense, right? We're, we're, we're talking about Stephen Ross and even Dan, when, you know, when we first spoke about number 15 here, if the community does well, you as the developer or investor will do well. We're talking about actual physical real estate, physical properties here. But I want to talk about community for a second in a different sense, right? So if the community does well, let's say that is the investor community that you are trying to be a part of or the investor community that Dan and I are trying to grow across the country. If the community does well, you as a member of that community will do well as well. So I think this can be read into several different ways. Obviously, we can look at it from the physical development space, which makes a ton of sense. But I think it also should be looked at from like the theoretical and community sense that if a community does well around you, like if you surround yourself with those people, I mean, right, we all know you're, you're the, the five people that you spend your most time with make up who you are and, and, and things like that. That's what we're getting at here as well. So go and be a part of a great community and help enrich that community by doing whatever you can. For sure. I don't have much to add to that, man. You drove it home. This is a wonderful, I think a wonderful lighter episode. I really enjoyed it. I actually learned a lot and just, I mean, these are all things that you kind of intrinsically know, but like, it's nice to hear them and have them clearly outlined to you and get them from somebody who's applied them well and achieved a great degree of success as a result, right? Yeah. I mean, this guy owns the Miami Dolphins. He's he's not doing too bad. It's nice to know that his, you know, 15 principles to get to an $11.6 billion net worth are pretty damn similar to the principles that you and I live by and the principles that probably a lot of our listeners do. So yeah, good stuff. Great episode. Thanks for everyone for listening. We will see you soon. The Canadian Real Estate Ambassador is for entertainment purposes only and not financial or investment advice. Always do your own due diligence. Nick Hill is a mortgage agent with Premier Mortgage Center, license number 10317 and a partner in G&H Mortgage Group. Agent license is M21004037. Daniel Foch is a real estate broker at Royal LePage or Community Realty, a member of Royal LePage Commercial, and a licensee with the Canadian Real Estate Association, Ontario Real Estate Association, and a member of the Toronto Real Estate Board.